Hi, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. We have a great show today, guys. Oh, great. We show. have an awesome show for you guys today. So we are going to be speaking to, well, well, not speaking to, speaking with Jason Church, who's here to join us to talk about the humble structures that many of our ancestors would have been familiar with, if not lived in, things like slave cabins, sharecropper cabins, those kind of really humble type of buildings, which in their own way really did build this country. Um, little intro, Jason Church is the Chief of Technical Services at the NCPTT, that's the net part of the National Park Service. Church coordinates and works to further develop the center's National Cemetery Training Initiative and related research. Before joining the NCPTT, he was a cons conservator and historical medals expert for the city of Savannah, Georgia. Um, in terms of their Department of Cemeteries. He earned his MFA in Historic Preservation from Savannah College of Art and Design and a BS in Building Science from Appalachian State University. And currently he is a professional associate of the American Institute for Conservation. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hello. <laughs> Love How it. are you Love today? It. Very well. How are you doing? I am fine. <laughs> Well, um, so how long on here? Mm -hmm. Would you like to tell the audience a little bit about what the NCPTT actually does? Yeah, so we're the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. We're a National Park Service office. Uh, we're located in Natchitoches, Louisiana, on the campus of Northwestern State University of Louisiana. And we are a training and technology uh, center of the Park Service that only looks at cultural materials. Uh, so in our day-to-day -day for myself uh, in the technical services division, we do a lot of mortar analysis, paint analysis. People will send us, you know, pieces of a building and we'll look, figure out what the mystery coding on it is. Um, we also do a lot of original research. Uh, we do a lot of sort of kind of like consumer reports uh, type of research where we'll look at commercially available maybe coatings or painting systems um, and see how those will affect historic materials over time. Uh, so that's the main thing we do. And I don't want to blow up anybody's inbox, but if there's, a, I suppose, a culturally important building in someone's community that they want to save, would your organization or your department be a department for someone to reach out to to find out how to preserve um, old buildings? Yes. I mean, we could definitely, you know, we're not going to come out and, you know, help you uh, figure out the best way or grants or anything like that. But we can definitely put you in touch with the people in your area that will help you. Uh, so we do a lot of that. We get, I get dozens of emails a day of that very thing. Uh, and my specialty is historic cemetery. So I get a lot of requests that way. And, and that's more one where we actually do help people figure out the best way to clean, the best way to document, um, you know, who in their area might be funding sources, that sort of thing. And kind of what's the, the kind of breadth of, because I, I, I'm assuming they're not, they may not all be properties, but the, the kind of projects that, um, that you guys work with. It is anything and everything. Um, you know, I might talk one day to a national park about a, you know, a very large structure. We may talk to an archaeological site about, uh, I'll give you an example of my team. So I have six that work for me. Um, so, for example, my team last week, uh, I had one team member at Carville, Louisiana, trying using ground penetrated radar to try to find the original um, patient cemetery. Uh, I had two uh, of my team members out at Magnolia Plantation doing laser scanning of the landscape for uh, documentation. I have one doing research right now in the laboratory on how fire suppressants that are dropped from aerial, um, you know, from planes, how does that affect cultural materials? So if there's a historic property involved in a wildfire and it gets hit, how does that affect the historic masonry or wood? Uh, and I have one team member who is doing research right now on the best ways to remove inland crude oil uh, from historic materials in case there's a pipeline burst. Um, and then, you know, I've got one out doing, um, editing interviews that she has done with former uh, tenant uh, farmers. 
So a wide range of stuff. So we do, we work with someone who might have, you know, a cemetery of a thousand, you know, burials versus I might uh, get someone who is interested in a single grave that's on the back of their farm property. What, what can they do with it? How can they preserve it? Mm-hmm. Um, we get, we get a, a, a wide range of requests. So you, you do, you deal with cemeteries as well? We do a lot of cemetery work. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Cool. So I, I, as I said, I was struggling to find the right term because I just imagine the, the kind of projects are just so varied. Um, one of the things I was wondering is before technology, what were some of the traditional ways that things like slave cabins and sharecropper cabins were, were preserved? Well, they weren't. <laughs> um photography and that's that's kind of been it um and you know a lot of the structures that we're documenting definitely aren't being preserved um we've definitely you know we are documenting ones on a very wide range ones that are owned by the park service ones that are owned by state parks all the way down to you know getting calls saying well you know on the back of my grandparents land we think we have one can you come and look at it um so, and definitely some of them are being preserved, you know, of course, ones that are owned by, you know, the state or, or by the park service, that sort of thing. Uh, but a lot of the ones that we're documenting, uh, you know, the owners don't really have the means to preserve them. You know, most of these aren't near a road. They're far back. We're having to take, you know, four wheelers or, or hike to get to them. Uh, so they're not, you know, there's really no impetus to preserve them. I mean, there, there's no water, there's no power to them that ever was, you know, so how do you justify dropping, you know, 30, $60,000 in a, you know, 800 square foot structure uh, that's, you know, a mile from the road. Um, so most of these, this documentation will be their only record. Um, we already have one question that I wanted to get out there because it's under, under the same scope that Brian is asking. Uh, is there a website showing who to contact for individual states or do you just lead to the National Park Service and, and that's the best way to do that? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about just preservation in general, then yes. Um, the easiest is to look for your state historic preservation office and you can just put in, you know, Ohio State Historic State State Historic Preservation Office and Google that'll come up. And that's really your front line in your own state if you're looking at, you know, anything. There, if you've got archaeology on your site, if you've got historic property, historic cemeteries, that's going to be the best person to help you as sort of your first line defense. Uh, and that's that's who you're looking for is your state historic preservation office. Okay. Because I'm again, when we were in the virtual green room, one of the one of the things you said was the enemies to these structures was the weather. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, these are very fragile structures. Um, and, and I'll get into more when we talk about sort of why they exist and why we got interested in them. But, um, you know, a lot of these, of course, are in the deep south uh, that the, the system of tenant farming lasted longer here than anywhere else. So these structures stayed occupied for much longer than anywhere else. That's why they've, they've survived. Um, it's not through you know, any sort of preservation efforts for the most part or conscientious, you know, to, to keep them, it's because they were still being used. They were still housing. Um, so the reason, and then of course, in the deep South, we have hurricanes, tornadoes, flood events, um, on the most part worse than, than most of the other parts of the country. Um, so yeah, these are very fragile structures because of that. We lost quite a few of them uh, recently during Ida. Uh, one of the sites uh, that I think we're going to look at uh, during this um, Laurel Valley, a very important site, uh, they lost nine of their historic structures, uh, you know, in one afternoon. Dang. I mean, well, I mean, that was going to be my question to you was what what even made you get involved? Like what what made you want to do this? What was your guiding? What was that? Well, you know, to, to, to be honest, um, and I don't, I don't mind saying this. I actually had no idea about tenant farming. I, I didn't even, you know, I, I knew it existed in, you know, depression era. It's something you think about in a, you know, Steinway novel, not a, um, you know, Steinbeck, sorry. Uh, but you don't think about it having survived so long. And I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina in the Appalachian mountains. 
And there we have a lot of small mill houses. Uh, my own family, that's, that's where a lot of them live. And when I had moved down here uh, to Louisiana, I saw these very small vernacular structures along the river road. And I assumed they were something similar, you know, something like what I grew up with, with cotton mill houses. And I just was in love with them. I thought they were just so quaint and, you know, these very small structures. And I was seeing them disappear very rapidly. You know, every time I went down, almost there was another one missing. And I, we, you know, getting into technology, we got into laser scanning. I thought, well, these are the perfect things to scan. They're very easy. They're very small. These would be a great way to learn laser scanning. And that's, we had, we had bought a laser scanner. You know, what a great way to learn by doing these small structures. And it wasn't until I met a gentleman, Elvin Shields, and we have several interviews with him on our YouTube channel, that he explained what tenant farming was to me and what these buildings meant. And then that was it. All you know, That's when I wanted to know more about the story. Uh, and then I went and gave a lecture. We do a lot with Grambling State University. We're not terribly far from them. Um, and I went to give a lecture on Founders Week at Grambling, assuming that I was sort of mostly going to tell more about the technology and, you know, sort of the bells and whistles of what we're doing, thinking that, of course, the students would know all about tenant farming. This was their history um, to find out that they didn't. And this was new. You know, I had about 70 students show up to my lecture. I had a 30 minute lecture and an hour of questions afterwards. And then mm. another half hour at lunch um, of all these students gather around going, hey, I was in this lecture. Tell them what you told me. And I realized that I wasn't the only one that didn't know this story, that it it wasn't widely known. And we, you know, I assume I wasn't taught it in school, but other people were. Um, but I found out that wasn't the case. And then that became the real push for this project was to try to, to get that story out there. Mm. Because really, I mean, as I said at the top of the show, in their own way, the people who lived in these really humble structures and led really humble lives, they contributed to the American kind of capitalism that, that happened. It's um, so sad that, that I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like holding back a slight tear or two <laughs> because it's just really sad that you you went to an HBCU and they did not know and and you know what this was and it's like um i mean we know why because states are mandated to teach a certain history and and all that and everything but you have hbcus amongst other schools have african-american courses so and african-american history courses so why would something like that not have been taught in one of their courses? So it's, you know. Well, I think I, one of the big things that's, that's been such an eye-opener for me was the time frames. You know, I knew tenant farming existed. Um, you know, of course, we know slavery existed. We know sort of, but the time frames are off. The, the time frames don't match up with what I was taught in school, and I think most of us were taught in school. You know, because we're interviewing tenant farmers now. They're mm. still alive because we were tenant farming, you know, until the, the latest that we have found. I interviewed one gentleman who, when he was a kid, and of course he was very young, um, but his family was still picking, hand-picking cotton on a, on a share cropping system in 1978. I was around in 1978. Right. <laughs> You don't realize the time frame that we're talking about. And that's one of the reasons you know, that these buildings have survived. A lot of the buildings that we're documenting were still in use in the late 1960s. And it really was mechanization that replaced the tenant farmer. It wasn't anything else. It was, well, now it's cheap enough for me to buy this tractor. I don't need you guys. You know, you're not really needed. I bought these tractors. So it's time to leave. And a lot of the people we've interviewed have talked about, you know, basically the, 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 the landowner, the plantation owner walking up and saying, don't really need you guys. You have till Wednesday to pack up whatever you can and leave. And this might be Monday. And that was it. 
So you were now homeless, you had no job, you'd had nowhere to go. And there was sort of a, a big migration in the South in that time period into towns. And, you know, people started picking up work wherever they could, but, you know, everyone sort of had to walk off of off of the, the plantation at that point. And at that point, most of these structures were demolished. No one's going to live in them. You don't need them. That's another quarter acre of cotton every time, you know, you can get rid of these. You can have more sugar, more cotton, you know, whatever. Um, so that's where most of them went. Um, so one good example is here where I live in Natchitoches Parish, so along what we call the Cane River region. Uh, Elvin Shields, um, who I mentioned earlier, he's done a lot of research, and he estimates there are about 800 of these structures along, um, along the Cane River in Natchitoches. And now there's about two dozen left with a, almost a dozen of those being owned by the National Park Service. So you're looking at less than a dozen in private hands. See, I think it's crazy that people were sharecropping when I was in junior high school. I mean, yeah, I was six. <laughs> you know, he said 78. I was six. Yeah. So. <sighs> that is yeah. crazy. But before we start going into the individual um, examples of the, the work that you're doing, um, I did get a question from Twitter. And the, the person who was asking the, the question wanted to know if taxpayer money was being used in this preservation and conservation work. Sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're the National Park Service. Um, so, yes, tax money is going toward this. This is, this is a national park project. Um, and because we're talking park service, federal government, there are things called stakeholders, people who can either indirectly or directly derive a benefit from this. What is the, um, I guess, what, what is the, the return on the investment for the American people in terms of cons conserving and preserving these buildings? Well, and, you know, really this documentation for a lot of the structures, unfortunately, and I wish this wasn't the case, but for a lot of these structures, this will be the only record that exists soon. Um, we've definitely documented structures that are already gone uh, since we started. And we did a short pilot project in the summer of 2019 where we did eight buildings. Um, last year, and I say last year, our fiscal year, so that's uh, October to September for us. So from October to September, we documented 122 buildings last year. And now we're, you know, we're in a new year for us. So we're, we're, you know, back the clocks back zero. We're trying to, um, you know, we've done several. I don't, I can't tell you off the top of my head how many we finished already this year. Um, but we've had several, I, I mentioned, you know, Hurricane Ida, several of the structures that we documented are gone already. Um, we documented one building on a Tuesday that collapsed on its own on that Thursday. Uh, we've documented a, a couple of structures who were demolished right after you know, we were able to say, yes, we have full documentation. We're good. Uh, the bulldozers were waiting in the parking lot for us. Um, so this will be the only record of that. And the reality in, in the digital world that we want to portray is, you know, we have sort of a false sense of how many of these structures really existed. So if you think about a lot of the tours that you've taken, let's say, you know, you go to one of the plantation, you know, that's open to the public they usually have maybe one or two sort of represent examples of a slave cabin. And they're usually pulled up pretty close to the Bain houses and they tell the story. And that's, that's fairly recent. So I think that's a good thing. I think kids coming up now will kind of scratch their head and say, well, of course they talk about slavery. Whereas, you know, when we were growing up, that would have not been there at all. Maybe they, a lot of these structures they rebuilt or they bought them from other places and brought them there because they demolished theirs because that wasn't part of the interpretation. But now it is. And that's great. Uh, and that's really, you know, people like Joe McGill bringing awareness and getting people to talk about it has really helped save a lot of these buildings. Uh, but the reality is that one, you know, cute little building right behind the big house is false. You know, it, there were probably 20 or 30 in a neighborhood on the back 40. Wow. There might have been one right behind the house for the cook or, um, you know, interior servants. But for the most part, these were whole neighborhoods way in the back and there were lots of them. You know, wow. when really we think about it, you know, you start looking at the records of some of these plantations and they had, 
you know, maybe a hundred slaves, 200 slaves. They didn't live in the one cute little cabin right behind the house. There would have been whole neighborhoods of these. And those themselves, the quarters, were active environments. These were neighborhoods where people, you know, they loved and they lived and they had families and, and you know, they had gardens and fences and they were very different than what we see now. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do with this digitally is to be able to recreate some of these sites as they would have looked and through descriptions. Um, so one of the great projects that we're working on, uh, if you've not read any of the books by Ernest Gaines, I highly recommend any of his books. Uh, but Ernest Gaines grew up at River Lake Plantation in what's uh, now New Roads, uh, Louisiana. And he, all of his books are are fictional books set on the plantation where he grew up. His family was were tenant farmers there. And now that neighborhood is gone. But we know what it was like through his descriptions. And we know from little drawings that he did on napkins and things like that, where the houses were and how many there were. And one of those was saved by LSU and moved to Magnolia Mound in Baton Rouge. So it's been preserved. So we've done a full model of that. One of our end goals is to digitally rebuild this neighborhood that he talks about in all of his novels. My God. So we can sort of get a, a more holistic view as to what, you know, these quarters would have really looked like. Well, what you just said really reminds me of the research that I'm doing and a number of people are doing with um, the Butler Plantation on Butler Islands in Georgia. Because again, he go, this. there's a lot of, there are maps and documentation of the different settlements that he had. He had like something like five or six. There was even a retirement settlement for mostly the really old, overworked women. I guess okay. they didn't really want to see them. So they just parked them on this remote island that had its mm. own settlement. And that, that was just kind of for them. Now, I know that Donia's got a lot of the, the, the videos and the, the pictures you're going to talk about. I guess as she's getting those queued up, I'm really I'm ready. You're ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm I've ready. Only, I've, only been, I've only ever been in two slave cabins. One was a reproduction at Monticello, and the other one was an original one at Patrick Henry's Red, Red Hill. And even though one was original and one wasn't, they were deeply just profound emotional experiences for me. I, the emotions just ran the gamut. I'm just really curious. What was the impact? What's the impact for you actually stepping inside of a slave cabin? You know, it, it's there's a wide range. We've documented ones that have been turned into stores and restaurants and mm. um, things like that. But the ones that have stayed very authentic, um, there's definitely a presence in them. I mean, they there's definitely a feel to them. Um, we've, you know, I've. I don't know. I guess we've been in, you know, probably close to 200 last year alone. Uh, Cause you know, we don't document everyone that we've, we've gone to. And like I said, some of them have been turned into an unrecognizable structure. Uh, you know, we've been in one that was turned into a bar for a pool house. I mean, but some of them that have been left alone, you know, there's definitely a, um, I don't know. I, I won't call out any names on my team and I don't want to embarrass anyone, but, you know, one of my team members, the first time she went in one to document it, just totally broke down. And it was just so much for, you know, and, and so I think everyone experiences them differently. But um, there's definitely a presence to be felt in them for sure. Um, I know that right now I'm very emotional. Wasn't expecting it. This is totally unexpected. Just listening to what you're talking about and um what you're saying and then the questions so i am emotional about it and um i'm <laughs> i i guess i've i've been in them in the museums but the feeling that i have right now with you just speaking on it is nowhere near what i felt when in a museum and and i know that i would definitely get a feeling because my ancestors haunt me every day so <laughs> i know i would i would get something from it um before we go into your videos 
Brandy Simmons asked another survey, uh, another question, which she's just been hot today. <laughs> Does the park <laughs> service use medical? metal detectors to go over the grounds the earth must be full of relics of people's lives with that being said before you answer have you know have you ever found someone's stuff as well oh yes um so so i'm gonna i'm gonna bring up three things before i'll let us go to the video the first is we don't um we're and i get that question all the time are you documenting the ruins of or you know, are you doing archaeology? We're not. It's just outside the scope of this project. Um, I would love the reality is if someone, you know, rained money down on us, we would hire 20 people and we would, you know, triple our, our work right now. There's three people in the field and me, and that's the entire project. Um, when we get a little extra money, we can bring in, um, you know, interns or small projects, but there's, you know, there's not a lot of, lot, not a lot of funding. Um, so we would love, to do the archaeology that would be amazing but we don't um and unless we could really do it properly we definitely don't metal detect or do anything like that um so the answer is no the and then donya your question do we find stuff all the time um and we take pictures of it we leave it we don't we don't even move anything um the laser scanning that we mm. do we do is non-contact so other than setting the tripod down and when we walk that's really the only impact we have on the buildings which is good because some of them can't take much more than that uh we've uh, I, uh for for safety reasons i won't tell you how fragile some of the buildings are uh because you don't want to know but um yes we found all kinds of things uh we definitely see the the drip lines around a lot of buildings so that's where the water is coming down you know sort of that edge around um there's always amazing things in the drip lines and we've seen all kinds of stuff where the water has just eroded that you know that line around the roof line um and and usually we take pictures of it one of my favorite is a site and i i will assume whoever had lived there last and we know the site was used until the um until the 50s 60s but whoever lived there last was obviously a seamstress um, all the door handles and all the drawer pulls, everything in the house were thimble spool. I mean, uh, thread spools. Mm. And on one of the drip lines, we were standing there because you have some time to sort of do nothing while the scanner's running. We noticed uh, one of the drip lines that was really eroded. There were buttons. There was a thimble. Um, you know, there was just so it's like, wow, this person obviously. I mean, we've got the 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 empty wooden spools everywhere. We've got buttons all outside you know you start trying to think like what was this like obviously this person was doing more than their own sewing maybe they were doing sewing for the whole quarters who knows um i have a it was given to me by a site um i usually don't take i don't take anything from the sites but uh this i was told i had to take um the the, the person told me the ancestors had sent it to me and i needed to keep it with me but it's a it's a straightening iron um, a straightening cone. So it's a metal cone that's just mangled and, but it's this really, really heavy brass mm. uh, cone um, that was at one of the sites that was along the roadway um, in front of the site. Um, so yeah, we find lots of things, but uh, back to Brian's question, I just want to throw this out. The, the most emotional I've ever been in one of the structures was one that was used much, much later, but still no power, no water um, that we were on. And it's way in the back of a sugar plantation. And I don't know if you're familiar with the music group, the Ohio Players. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the Ohio Players. So this house was split. Originally, it was four houses in one, so a quadplex. So originally, four families would have lived in this one. And of course, as it's been modified, doorways have been cut. Now you have one family with just four bedrooms or four rooms in this structure and obviously this had been maybe a, a girl's room but they had painted on the walls um these records and so the ohio players and lyrics were all painted down the wall and you realize you know think about this is the 70s that wasn't long ago yeah. wasn't long ago. jesus so you know the family living in this working this sugar plantation she's listening to the ohio players 
I mean, this girl's loving, and I'll assume because it was a lavender paint. We're going to assume it was a girl. It may not have been, but, you know, and you realize, you know, how long this building was in use. So that, that was not me because you realize, like, you know, at that point, we're putting people on the moon where, you know, and, mm. you know, we're on the back of this property with, uh, you know, no, no interior plumbing, listening to Ohio players on a, on a turntable. So. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm I'm like really bothered right now that you because and you made it even worse. Well not worse, but it, it you you put a, an even stronger emphasis on it because you actually just said we were putting people on a moon at this time. Because we were. Yeah. And this was still happening. This was going on and oh my God. So okay. Um Sorry. let's Let's go into the Magnolia Plantation. I'm gonna okay. add that to the screen to the screen the screen and um why don't you talk to us ab about it? Sure. Um so this is one of the things that we're doing. Um I'm going back outside just to <laughs> so people can see it. Alright. So the level of detail is just incredible. So this is, this one, all right, so we're documenting the, the properties in a variety of ways. And this is with a 360 camera. So this is a camera that takes a 360 degree view. And we use a software to stitch all these pictures together. So there's lots and lots of pictures that were taken and they get stitched together in the software. And, you know, that way you can interact with it and you can move through it. Uh, so this is one of the brick slave cabins at Magnolia Plantation, which is now part of the National Park Service. And this is one of, I think there's, oh gosh, I should know this. And I apologize. I think there's nine or 10 left. There were a lot more and a tornado went right through the middle of the quarters and destroyed a good chunk of them um, early on. These are 1840s, um, and these are sort of the interpretation signs. And if you click on any of the dots that are over some of the photographs in it, the Park Service has done a really great job, an amazing amount of research to figure out who lived in these. And that's a really important thing that I think gets looked over. And I, I, I think uh, Cane River uh, Creole uh, National Park has done a really great job of trying to sort of do the research to figure out who was in these. So this one, uh, the Vircher family was living in, John Vircher was the last, and they were living in there, um, I want to say about the 1970s is when they moved out. When I came to Natchitoches for the first time, they were having a reunion there, uh, my first weekend ever in Natchitoches. So that was a big thing, a big um, thing for me was to see. So if you kind of scroll back toward any of those little blue dots, like the one there in the little corner above the picture frame. If you click on any of those, um, you can see the pictures that are in them, um, a little bit about them. So that's an actual photograph from that actual cabin. Oh, wow. These are the people who live there. And some of them we know their names, so their names are in the descriptions. Um, and I think that's really important because I think, you know, we're documenting the tangible. But it's the intangible that gets overlooked. So here's uh, John Bircher and his family. And it, actually, someone's written his name on it. It's how we know uh, who he was. Um, and, you know, there's, of course, still family around that are related. And that's a lot of the people that we're trying to talk to to get sort of these stories and what it was like growing up in these structures. Um, you know, one of the ones that we've, if you, I know you're going to show our YouTube account later. Um, but you can talk to, you know, listen to us talking to Elvin Shields, who grew up in the cabin he's sitting on the front porch of, and talks about what it was like growing up. Uh, actually, the one he grew up in is gone. It's uh, the one his sister lived in and was married in and, and raised kids in um, that we're on. So this cabin, brick, 1845, somewhere around there. Um, and originally this was two families. So this is a duplex. And this is it. This is the entire thing. Nothing's missing. They haven't torn off the kitchen. This is the entire house. 
that you're seeing right now. And the way it's, you know, sort of the way they're interpreting it is as it was used as a tenant structure. And during tenant farming, the doorways were put in and they were split. So you've got a bedroom on one side, the other side you're using as your kitchen. But during slavery times, this was two full houses. So Mm -hmm. you and the whole family, you're living in that one room, your kitchen's in that room, your living room's in that room, your bedroom's in that room. That's it. Um, I was with a group from Tuskegee out at this site, and one of the young ladies pulled me aside and said, my closet in Atlanta is bigger than this. And you go, Hmm. yeah, this is about 10 by 10. And so you've got, you know, anywhere from six to eight to 10 people living in that space. Um, And really at that point, the exterior becomes as important. Uh, That's why yards were so important. That becomes part of your, your living space. Well, taking a look at um, what Donnie is clicking on, I mean, it looks as though you guys have done an amazing job adding humanity into the project. You know, like I said, just the little things like the photographs and just knowing some of the names of the people that that actually lived there. I mean, that's incredible. And and that's really, you know, we're just coming in the document. This particular one was completely done uh, by the National Park Service. and you know they've done a really great job doing that research and that's one of the things we would like to do on on more of them a lot of the ones um that we've documented we know nothing about them the people who own the land don't know anything and then you start talking to people and they go oh i know who used to live there so it's like oh wait if you do tell us more about that because we would like eventually you know as many as we can you know what can we find out about the people who live there, because uh, that's that's really important. Um, oh, wow, I think I, I lost my thing. Oh, God. Okay, let me go back. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I wouldn't even know how much information local historical societies or genealogical societies would even have about these kind of buildings. Usually not many. Um, most of we're actually being contacted by the people who were um, are directly related. So one of the things that we didn't talk about, um, you know, how are we finding these properties? You know, how are we being? Yeah. So each of those spots is where we took an image. So that tells you how many pictures that we have to stitch back together. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, we started with this project was I, I wrongly assumed that we could just call people up and say, hey, are there slave Slaver tenant cabins in your area, can I get permission? And we've got a lot of, I have no ideas. You know, a lot of people said, I, I don't know if there are. Well, I don't even know where they would be. And we get a lot of people that tell us, well, there can't be many left. You know, the whole U.S., there can't be but a few. So we decided to really let people sort of lead us. So we just started posting on Facebook and Instagram what we were doing. And, hey, if you know of a site call us up or email us, you know, drop us an email, tell us if you know of one. And right now that's where they've all come from. You know, we're not knocking on doors asking to document. We're letting the houses come to us. And so that way we also sort of avoid that issue of, well, I'm sorry, you can't come, you know, I don't want to talk about this or we don't want you on our property. That's sort of negated because they asked us. So that also, it makes it easier on us. But we realized really quickly, there's more of these than we can ever. I mean, we could run this project with 20 people for 10 years and still find places. Uh, Every time I go somewhere, you know, I think, all right, well, I, I think we've gotten them all. And someone will stop me and go, well, have you, you know, have you documented the ones over here? No, I've never heard of that place. Hold on, let me write it down. And we start all over again. Um, so there's a lot more of these buildings standing than I think we ever conceived that there were. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it literally, you know, we're, we're running this crowdsource. So, you know, if, you know, go check our Instagram and see what we're doing. And if you know there's a one around and and you have permission or you know who would have permission 
drop us a you know a text, drop drop us a, an email, and that's how we're you know what we usually do is try to to um, you know build them up. So you you know we get a good amount in one area, then we we go there. Uh, so in February we're going to Georgia, and we've got you know quite a few uh, lined up just on the coast of Georgia alone enough for the month and then I, my team will drive back sort of recoup and then we're heading to low country south carolina um you know the the uh buford and uh, uh st helena island area we're doing some work for the penn center we're going to document the buildings of the penn center and we'll be doing tours like you just saw uh for the reconstruction era national park of uh, the tabernacle baptist church the brick baptist church um some of those buildings as well so let me let me ask you a really um because i yeah i'm i'm very emotional over here this is like really blowing me and i don't know if you guys were paying attention but when i was clicking on different things the the front one before i closed the screen these pictures i want you guys to know if you couldn't read what i was reading these pictures were are as early as 1904 that's that's how early those pictures are because that's what it says in the um the thing but these buildings were built in 1845 mm -hmm. so this was a generation of families living in this place so this i'm talking about going back to moses you know what i mean i mean I, you know our grandparents uh, our great great grandparents they were living there and they brought up their children who brought up their children who brought up their children and they were all right there like i i can say grandparents because my grandmother and grandfather were born in 94 1894 and 1898 so this was could have been somewhere they were they could have been living and and that i think that's why i'm i'm having a little more trouble than i thought i was gonna have because i'm picturing my grandmother i i was able to go visit my great-grandmother's um house and it was sitting on rocks that was the foundation the the rocks itself was sitting in every corner and um that's where my grandmother that's where they lived so now looking at this is making me it's making me see that and then i guess it's also making me want to ask you can i ask you personally to go and document where my grandmother lived before that house falls sure yeah we're gonna yeah. talk cause... And, and and when people ask what well, usually what we do is say you know send me where it is and that you have permission or who you know Put us in touch with who does have permission for the land. And then what do you know about it? Do you have pictures of her? Um, I you know, do. I have, do. Because we will uh. incorporate all that into it. And then what we try to do is, you know, when we're going to be in that area. So, like, I've got people who've asked me to go to Virginia. We probably won't make it even this year. It'll probably have to be next year. because We just we're getting so many that are get that are being brought to us way more than we ever thought. I'll be honest um so yeah so like you know originally we're, we're doing some work for the park service in the low country of south carolina we're just getting you know you know at request after request and now it's like okay now it's going to be you know at least a month there just to you know hit what we've got and we'll probably have to eventually go back you know as well because um so many of these places are, are coming up but um, well, again, let's chat after the show because I know it's the federal government and there's do's and don'ts in terms of funding, but I just wish there was a way that we could do like a GoFundMe, GoFundMe thing for, for the project. Because, we, you know, we have that kind of audience. They would, you know, they're really enthusiastic and you know, they, they would love to support something like that. But I appreciate it. It's the federal government <clears throat> and well, there are all kinds we have a friends group and uh we also we also work through uh the our local university so we can get paid that way and nice. some of these and we you know sometimes people you know we're, we're sort of getting funded from a variety of ways so some places pay us to come you know places that have the money and have large 
you know, endowments or, or, you know, we're maybe documenting 20 buildings on site. Some have just offered like Evergreen Plantation, for example, privately owned. They have 22 cabins. We couldn't miss that. So they let us stay there. So that offset made it very inexpensive for us to document their 22 because we got to stay there for free. So that helps us. Um, travel money is always um, something we're running out of. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, some places can afford to pay, most can't, and we want to document them all. So we, you know, we take the money from one and sort of that helps us fund, you know, your grandmother's back on the, you know, the back property kind of thing. So, well, let's, let's get into the, um, the video really quickly. The shotgun tenant farm. It's it's like a minute long. So guys yeah. listen there. And this is of course this is not a slave cabin. This was built uh, about the turn of the century. Um, and this is this one is no longer standing. This was at Laurel Valley, um, in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And this site was hit very hard by Hurricane Ida, and they lost eight of these structures, uh, including this one. So this doesn't exist any longer. So what you're seeing is we are using a 3D laser scanning scanner. Uh, we, we have more than one. We're using, in this one, a Faro Focus S. And it throws out a grid of laser light that is making points of all the spots that it's seeing. And that we from that, we can actually take measurements. We can make blueprints and measure drawings and things like that from our scan. So this is the real building as it exists. Uh, this isn't photography. This isn't a drone. Uh, this is actually a point cloud of laser. Um, and from this, um, you know, we do the exterior and the interior of the structure. You know, and I can appreciate how fragile these buildings are because looking at this video, it's not like they had an interior wall and an exterior wall. It was like no. the wood, and that was it. There's no insulation in any of these. That that. Those uh, barge boards on the outside are the same ones that you see on the inside. Um, and there's the thickness of that wall. That's one board, so about three quarters of an inch. Um, uh, um, yeah, we we collapsed a couple of porches trying to document these because, I mean, they're just, they're so fragile. The, this this is like absolutely amazing i'm looking at this and all i see is like i'm sorry i'm i'm really i'm very very emotional right now because all i see is when we went to go visit my great-grandmother's house and it was it jesus it was um it was amazing to be able to see it and the barn is still standing um, to the to the back, and I think the outhouse is also everything is still standing. But I think the barn is standing because it's full of it's full of hay. I mm -hmm. think that's the only reason that it's hold you know that it's 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 standing up. So yeah, I don't please don't don't close out when we okay you know don't because. If my mom is watching this right now, like I know she's gonna be like, you need to talk to him and find out because to be able to document her place like that before, before you know, before anything happens, because the people that own that land, they they haven't done anything to it. We were able to go up there and and look at it, and um, I took my mom to see it, I took my aunt to see it, and then. My cousin and I went to see it, and it was just an amazing, it's an amazing sight. But now to see what you're doing with, and I, like, I never, we never even tried to go inside or anything like that. It wasn't even a thought. So I don't even know if you can. Yeah, like, we wear hard hats and, um, you know, everything. And, and you know, luckily all the, the structures have been okay so far. There's. We've got one coming up that I've sort of joked with my team. We're going to put a rope around our scanner so we can yank it out if the building goes. Uh, that we're going to do it. We and we do it remotely, so we're, you know, we're, um, you know, we're operating this thing from far from away so that we're not in the scan. Um, but part of it is also so we don't have to stay in the house either. <laughs> Jesus, I'm just like amazed. So, oh, I'd like uh, to talk to. Uh, get, 
please email me uh, the ones in Siler City. We're heading to North Carolina later this year. Uh, I know where Siler City is. I don't know any about about these, so that'd be really awesome. Oh, well, there and, you go. Yeah. And if uh, I remember correctly, Donia, you're familiar with at least a few in Edgefield. Okay, so yeah, let let me let me ask you about this because right on Highway 25, you can drive, and then all of a sudden you'll you'll see like out of your peripheral vision um, a flash, and you don't know what that flash is, but it's it's a flash, and then you happen to look to the side and you realize that it's the top of the roofs, the metal roofs, mm-hmm. and the sun is shining on it, and that's why you're seeing it in the peripheral. Now it's just on Highway 25, but it's so overdrawn, over. Well, it's so covered with wooded areas. Would you be able to go into some places like that? So vegetation is is hard. Um, we, and this is one of the reasons. You know, it's funny people say, "Well, can't you just drive down the road and find them?" You know, the, the, the reality is, no, they could be right there and you drive past them a thousand times and never see them. And they're 10 feet off the road because of vegetation. Mm-hmm. Um, the laser scan does not like vegetation for a couple of reasons. One, leaves move the whole time. So it doesn't get, it just comes out bl- a blur to us most of the time because everything's got to be still for that, that beam to hit and bounce back. Um, so there's a couple of things we can do. We'll wait till the winter when the vegetation has died off. Um, a lot of times we'll ask the, you know, the, if, if someone's asked us to come scan, we'll say, well, you know, can you do your best job to remove as much of the vegetation as possible? Uh, you know, in the safety realm of keeping the building up, because sometimes that kudzu actually is holding the building up. Uh, we have found that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the, those vines are the only thing keeping the building you know, we documented one where we started removing and realized, you know, the vines coming in one way and coming in the other were actually what was holding it upright. So as we started, the building started going with it. So it was like, oh, the vines have to stay. We I swear, to- I think that's what's holding up my grandma. I swear. Yeah. I believe that. I think that my grandmother's house is still sta- My great grandmother's house is still standing because of that. Now, mind you guys, my great grandmother died in 1956. We are in 2021. I first saw it in 2017. The house, the barn, the outhouse, it all is still standing. So before anything else, is there a contact? for you that because you got I got people talking about please post his contact information and you know an actual website just for you guys not necessarily your YouTube channel or something um my email is the best um I can put it in the I can put it in chat and you guys can share it um the project itself doesn't have its own site yet uh we are working on that all of these will eventually um go on a National Park Service story map where every location will be. Excellent. Thank you for doing that. And while you're typing that in, a question from Myra. Do you have a counterpart in Missouri and specifically the St. Louis County area? (coughs) No, it's just us. Um, Yeah. (laughs) He said, yeah, it's just us. It's just us. Uh, it's it's myself and a team of three that uh, basically live in our government van and they just drive around with all the equipment. Um, I I will I line everything up. I do talks like this. Um, I get all the permissions. I line everything up, build a big spreadsheet, and occasionally I I'm lucky enough to join them. But for the most part, they're doing all the work in the field. Um, so if you. Um, you know, if you if you go to our YouTube, I mean, our Instagram, let's see, I think it's let me check, make sure I'm not giving you the wrong, but you can see, see the team in action. They post while they're in the field, um, you know, continuously. Yeah, it's, uh, so on Instagram, it is. Yeah, I mean, this is just such an amazing thing. I uh, whew, I did not realize I was going to be this emotional, but I think it's, I really think it's because of 
my grandmother, my great grandmother and um, where she lived in South Carolina. It was in Edgefield, South Carolina. Um, I, I think she has everything to do with it. You know, Lula, she don't play games. So she comes to me when necessary. And I guess she was like, get my house done. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> but if if we can get her house done, I would I would love that. I would love well, that. We're hoping to be in South Carolina in March. Um, so maybe we maybe you could do one of these live from the site and you could interview my team instead of me out out in the uh on the property and see how it works jesus oh that would be so awesome and again our perspective is always going to be different because we can think of a hundred ancestors that we can actually name who would have lived in lived in one of those buildings and i will always cycle back and i was really surprised that i had such a strong reaction in the slave cabin of monticello because that was reproduction it was never lived in by enslaved people um, but there was the Brian who went into that cabin because I was with my siblings and we were chatting and having a whole conversation. And I think I barely said a sentence after I walked out of that building. I, it, it just impacted me on, on that kind of a level. Um, and I was really surprised, really, really surprised by that. So at least when I came time to go to Patrick Henry's farm in Virginia and go into his actually authentic slave cabin it was still jarring but i didn't have the intensity of the first that that first one because i could see the people in there i could see the lives being li lived and yeah it was it, it was rough it was rough but they survived you know but I, the, my takeaway was it was you know they survived it because otherwise i wouldn't be here if sure. they didn't yeah. <laughs> well i i just I want to thank you like so much um, for being here and um, I wasn't expecting to be as emotional and I, as I am. So yeah, y'all, I'm sappy when I need to be, but um, <laughs> <laughs> please, you know, once we hang up and everything, don't, don't disconnect. Um, Cause I do want to talk to you about that. And I hope you guys like really, took a lot from this show i know i did i'm talking to the fans now um randy said donya and you and brian always emanate powerful emotions during your shows you're being so moved it moves us you being so moved it moved us so i i don't i'm this one right here just kind of took me i wasn't i wasn't ready so um well i'm gonna say you. this was very powerful Thank you again, Jason, so much for um, for coming on the show. Next week for me is going to be equally powerful and for me, really emotional because we're going to be talking about ancestors who were sold downriver using U.S. slave ship manifest and records in your research. Um, so again, another rough topic, but genealogically speaking for us, it's, it's important. And um, again, we hope that people are going to have a good takeaway. So as always, that is going to be next Sunday right here, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yep. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so done right now. <laughs> like I said, it's, you know, and pe some people have been sharing their, their comments um, with us. It is hard, especially for Black genealogists, because we can name ancestors who would have lived in these type of buildings, whether they were enslaved or whether they were sharecroppers or tenant, you know, or tenant farmers. Yeah. And we hear those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, thank you guys for joining us. Um, we look forward to seeing you next week, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I'm Donya. I'm Brian. You have an enjoyable rest of your day. All right. See you Thanks guys. For me. Yes. Thank you again, Jason. Thank you again. Um, bye. <laughs>